This program is brought to you by PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. To learn more about this podcast, visit pli.edu slash pro bono podcast. We really have this amazing case, this tragic story for the courts. And the courts say, yeah, sorry, we don't get to hear your tragic story unless you can get through these procedural hoops. I was 100% committed to Mark, and I could not bear the thought that if I didn't keep the case pro bono, that someone would have to start from scratch. And that was just too much to fathom. This year, we saw Adnan Syed released from prison, in large part because podcast brought attention to the fundamental unfairness of his trial and conviction. But there are others in prisons around the U.S., people whose trial and conviction were even more egregious than what happened to Syed. And some of them are also finding justice and getting released from prison, in large part because of the hard work of pro bono lawyers. In this episode and the next one, We'll learn about one case in Delaware, about one man whose extraordinary resolve and self-advocacy caught the attention of lawyers in the Federal Defender's Office. And we'll learn about how it took the combined efforts of federal defenders, a dedicated local pro bono lawyer, a brand new Innocence Project in Delaware, and an AMLAW 100 firm to finally get him a just result. There's just so much that happened in this investigation, trial, and appeals. It is almost too much to keep track of. So we'll cover it in two episodes. This episode is about the conviction and appeals. And in the next episode, we'll talk about the retrial. Welcome to Pursuing Justice, The Pro Bono Files, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute, in which lawyers and clients talk candidly about their pro bono experiences. I'm your host, Alicia Aiken, and for 15 years, I was a legal services attorney in Chicago. Now, I'm a principal at Danu Center for Strategic Advocacy, a national organization supporting advocates and mission-based organizations in their own pursuit of social justice. I'm also a faculty fellow at PLI, where I get to work on special projects like this podcast. There was a murder, and it was shocking, and it was devastating for the community. In January of 2006, 30-year-old Tamika Giles and her husband were walking down a street in Wilmington, Delaware. Two men approached them and demanded her shopping bags. She refused. One of the men then shot and killed her, and then both men ran full speed away from the scene. Tamika died later that day at the hospital, and in their tributes to her, friends and family described Tamika as a beautiful singer with a big heart. She was loved, and her death was a loss.
what followed her killing was a year-long investigation. The police ultimately relied on compromised witnesses to construct a story that teenager Mark Purnell killed her. There is no physical evidence to tie him in any way to the killing. More importantly, it was physically impossible for Mark to be one of the men who ran full speed away from the scene in January 2006. But Mark Purnell had to spend 15 years watching the system grind away while he tried to get courts to see the fundamental unfairness in his conviction. I started by talking with Tiffany Hurst, who used to be a federal public defender, and I asked her how they got involved in overturning Mark's conviction in a Delaware case. I'm Tiffany Hurst, and I was working for the Federal Public Defender's Office as a capital habeas attorney, and that generally involves people who are convicted of and sentenced to death. That was not the case for Mark. Our office was very selective about taking on those types of cases. We noticed irregularities and felt that we absolutely had to take on his case. Can you tell me about Mark Purnell? What's he like? Mark is an incredibly intelligent young man, and he's very passionate, has always maintained his innocence. Mark Purnell grew up in a tough neighborhood on the east side of Wilmington, Delaware. At 17, he was arrested and then convicted for a murder he didn't commit. And despite all these experiences, Mark held on to a passionate belief that it could get fixed if he could just get connected with the right lawyers. When I first met him, he spent a good hour telling me about his innocence. And he moved me in a way that... I generally am not moved because it's not really my job to be moved. <laughs> it's it's my job to look at what I can do for clients, whether their cases are moving or not. But for the first time in my then 15 years, I actually said to a client, I believe you. I was just so moved by his plea by his situation, I felt the need to convey to him that I really did believe him. He had been failed by so many attorneys, and he needed to know that he wasn't going to be failed by me. That is such an important point. The fact that he even continued talking to lawyers after the ways that other people had failed him is in of itself an expression of eternal optimism. Indeed. I wouldn't blame you if you're skeptical. Something just doesn't quite fit. A jury convicted Mark Purnell of murder. He had an appeal, and he lost. He had his day in court, right? But at the same time, Tiffany and the other federal defenders think he is obviously innocent. What were they seeing that had them so convinced? So at the time that you met him, I mean, the deck is as stacked against him as you can get. He has been convicted by a jury after a trial. 
the Delaware Supreme Court has twice affirmed his conviction. He's living in the dehumanizing situation of prison. And yet he is able to tell you things that persuade you to say something you've never said before to a client, which is, I believe you. So given all of that, what happened to him back at the trial that resulted in a conviction? Well, the bottom line is that his trial counsel had a major conflict of interest. And that conflict of interest was that one of the individuals who was named as a potential witness against Mark had been his former client and was also a potential assailant of the victim. For Mark, that meant that there were several leads that just were not pursued. And these leads were substantial. Conflict of interest. It might sound like some arcane point of ethics law. But in Mark's case, it was a huge deal. Your lawyer has a duty of loyalty to you even after your case is over. And your lawyer can't use information from your case to help another client in a way that hurts you. And if the lawyer's duty of loyalty to an old client prevents them from being a zealous lawyer for a new client, the lawyer can't represent the new client. So now let's consider Mark's case. The best way to prove Mark's innocence was to prove who actually shot Tamika. The leads about who shot her pointed to a former client of Mark's lawyer. And the duty of loyalty to that old client prevented the lawyer from pursuing those leads. So what were those leads? They involved two other individuals who had shared an apartment together, had a gun that could have been the murder weapon. And of those two individuals, one of them was a dead ringer for the co-defendant because he was the co-defendant's brother. So this was a major, major conflict because the attorney was unable to investigate this individual. The end result was that the attorney never called his former client to the stand to hammer that former client as the potential shooter or the potential robber of the victim. This is a major issue for Mark's defense. Mark's lawyer had a former client named Dewan. Dewan had been actually investigated for the murder. That investigation recovered a gun. And in his 18-minute police interview, Dewan admitted the gun was his and then requested a lawyer, which ended the interview. When Dewan was charged for illegally possessing that gun, Mark's lawyer was the one who represented Dewan. Mark's lawyer knew the gun case was connected to the investigation of Tamika's murder. And later, Mark's lawyer did not pursue the lead suggesting Dewan committed the crime 
in Mark's trial. Okay, so the lawyer has a conflict, but you still might be skeptical. After all, there was a witness who identified Mark's co-defendant, Ronald, in a photo lineup. If Dewan did the crime, why did the witness identify someone else? Well, consider this. Dewan and Ronald are brothers. By all accounts, Ronald and Dewan look almost identical. The police even told Dewan that a witness picked him out of a photo lineup. Maybe the person the witness really saw was Dewan and not Ronald. Okay, but again, to be skeptical, we have to consider this fact. Mark's co-defendant, Ronald, pled guilty and testified against Mark. So what do the federal defenders make of that fact? Cornell's co-defendant had significant intellectual challenges. He had an intellectual disability and was essentially hammered into eventually testifying against Mark. Ronald Harris, Mark's co-defendant, was 17 the first time he was interrogated. He was intellectually disabled. He was unable to read or write. The police questioned him without his parents and without a lawyer. They handcuffed him to a chair, and the interrogation went on for 11 hours. There's video of him alone in the interview room, sobbing, because he is so confused at the suggestion he committed this crime. He even says, might be my brother, but not me. A year later, the police interrogated Ronald again. And again, he was questioned without his parents and without a lawyer. The police lied to him. They said that Mark had implicated Ronald in the crime. They told him, Mark is not as dumb as you are. They said he would spend the rest of his life in jail, even implied a death penalty. And Ronald repeatedly said, that's a lie. But at the end of that interrogation, the police officer said, all right, come on, rocket science, let's go downstairs and book you. Ronald was arrested and charged in the murder of Tamika. And then on the eve of trial, Ronald Harris took a plea deal and got a sentence of three years. And that deal required Ronald to testify that Mark shot Tamika. But at trial, the prosecutor even told the court that Ronald was, quote, unpredictable. The testimony Ronald gave was, in the words of the Delaware Supreme Court, nearly incoherent. The prosecutor even had to interrupt Ronald's testimony and offered a recording of an interview with a detective instead. But honestly, that interview didn't make much sense either. And what did Mark's trial lawyer do? He didn't cross-examine Ronald at all. So this is a mess, but it's still not enough to make me think Mark is obviously innocent. So I asked Tiffany about that. I'm going to push back a little bit. So his attorney had a major conflict that prevented his attorney from pursuing important leads into alternative suspects who could have committed the crime, which would at least create reasonable doubt. And his co-defendant had an intellectual disability, which made it easier for the police and prosecutors to use potentially coercive tactics to get 
the co-defendant to testify that he was there, that Mark shot Tamika Giles. Those strike me as things that indicate reasonable doubt that you can't convict him. But you told him, I believe you are innocent. So was there something about Mark at the time of the crime that led you to believe? Not only do I think there's reasonable doubt, not only does the state not make their case, but he did not do this. Absolutely. The biggest thing that led me to believe that he did not commit the crime was the fact that during the time period of the event, he was laid up in his house recovering from substantial knee surgery. One of the surgeons said that it was one of the three most unusual surgeries that he had experienced. And he simply was physically incapable of running at full speed, well, running at any speed, but at full speed as described by the witnesses from the scene of the crime when the crime was committed. And unfortunately, that was another area where his trial attorney dropped the ball. He did not get the expert testimony in that was needed for the jury to hear about the significance of his knee surgery. He was still on crutches during that time period when the shooting occurred. So this was significant evidence of actual innocence. So to recap, Mark's lawyer had a major conflict with another suspect in the crime. The prosecutor relied on nearly incoherent testimony from an intellectually disabled teenager. Mark's lawyer didn't cross-examine that nearly incoherent testimony at all. And finally, Mark had major knee surgery, which left him on crutches and unable to run at the time of Tamika's murder. Okay, now I'm on board about innocence. And how did Mark get this attorney who had a conflict and also apparently didn't do a great job developing really clear evidence at trial? Did his family pick it? The lawyer was appointed to represent him. There was a point when the attorney realized that he had a conflict. Earlier on in the case, when the attorney was looking at discovery, the attorney suspected that his former client might be involved and might have been a suspect in the case. And so he inquired of the prosecutor, you know, is this my former client? At some point, it came out that it was his former client. So there were a number of red flags regarding the fact that this trial attorney's former client could end up actually being a significant person in this trial. And you cannot investigate your former client. That's completely unethical. 
But he really knew trial was about to begin. And he raised the issue to the court. And the court was not very receptive because the jury had been picked. It's costly (laughs) to (laughs) pick a jury. The judge didn't really realize or recognize that it was an actual conflict as opposed to a tentative conflict and made an incorrect ruling. So the case went to trial with Mark's conflicted lawyer. And then the jury convicted him of second-degree murder. The judge sentenced him to 77 years. But our system guarantees the right to an appeal. And our system will appoint an attorney to handle that appeal. So I wondered why the conflict problems didn't get addressed on appeal. Let's fast forward to after Mark is convicted by the jury. And now it's time for appeal. And if I looked at this case... For sure, I would bring arguments that the judge made the wrong ruling. Why didn't Mark's appointed appellate attorney raise the argument that Mark's appointed trial attorney screwed up? Interestingly, because it was the same attorney. The same attorney who represented him at trial also represented him on direct appeal. So he would have had to raise the claim that he screwed up. So without knowing anything about the serious conflict of interest, the Delaware Supreme Court affirmed Mark's conviction. But Mark knew he was innocent. So Mark took matters into his own hands by writing his own pro se petition for post-conviction relief. It was over 100 pages long. And every lawyer we talked to emphasized the importance of this handwritten petition. But I want to emphasize the importance of Mark's persistence. The system and his lawyer had utterly failed him, and he found the strength to keep pushing the issue forward on his own, even though he had been arrested before he could even get a high school degree. Tiffany and I talked about Mark's pro se petition. So then Mark brings a post-conviction relief, and he files pro se, right, a post-conviction relief action. What was his pro se filing like? Oh, it was over 100 pages handwritten of various claims. The very first claim was the conflict of interest claim. And it was a substantial enough pleading that he, when he asked for counsel, counsel was appointed. Post-conviction counsel was appointed. And that, that doesn't happen all the time. There are plenty of of people who are required if they pursue that type of action to represent themselves. So that's a big deal. That sounds like good news. What happens with his post-conviction appointed counsel? So it was really unfortunate. His post-conviction counsel was not in good health. I don't know if he ever even saw Mark's 100-page handwritten document. But what I do know is that when it came time for him to file his document with the court, it was about five pages total, and it did not contain the conflict of interest claim. And can you tell the listeners why you aren't able to call and talk to this lawyer about why he did the things he did? 
because he passed away. Yes, you heard that correctly. His first appointed lawyer handled the trial and appeal despite having a major conflict of interest. His second appointed lawyer removed the conflict of interest issue from Mark's pro se petition and then died shortly before oral argument to the Delaware Supreme Court. This story has more twists and turns, so many that it is hard to keep track. But I do want us to keep track of the amount of time that Mark was forced to spend navigating those twists and turns. He was arraigned in 2007 at age 17. A year and a half later, he was convicted and sentenced to 77 years. Though Mark always acted in a timely fashion, the system took ages to make decisions. It took another year for his appeal to be denied. When he filed his pro se post-conviction motion and asked for a lawyer's help, it took 15 months before the appointed lawyer filed an amended motion. Then it took the court almost two years to deny it. Mark appealed right away in June 2013, but it took until November 2014 for the Supreme Court to deny that. I want us to keep track. At this point, Mark had spent seven years locked up while trying desperately to get competent legal counsel to help him show his innocence. And that is when Mark turned to the federal courts and came to the attention of the Federal Defender's Office, where Tiffany worked. Okay, so Mark has an unusually compelling explanation of his innocence. And he has been deeply disserved by the system that is supposed to protect him. And your office decides to take on his case. What's your greatest challenge in getting Mark's conviction overturned? Trying to say this without getting into detail is so hard. I know. Um, How would you explain it to your kid over the dinner table? Okay. So... Our biggest challenge once the case gets to us is that the federal forum cannot consider the facts of this case unless it turns out that there was something really problematic that happened in the procedure of the state forum. We really have this amazing case, this tragic story for the courts. And the courts say, yeah, sorry, we don't get to hear your tragic story unless you can get through these procedural hoops. Then that means that you end up going back to the Delaware state courts, right? Yes. Try to get them to say this is fundamentally wrong, needs to be fixed. And that's its own kind of complicated and hard, right? Yes, because they are not trying to look at the facts at this stage in the proceedings, unless you can convince them that there was something wrong with the procedure. Actual innocence from a legal perspective might not matter. I've been trying to process all of it, and I think it's that there is an interest in finality right, that we talk about in law school, that the courts have an interest in finality, and that at a certain point in time in our system, the interest in finality becomes more important. You have to persuade the court that it is going to be embarrassed 
and ashamed of itself if it doesn't upend the finality and and redo this. Right. That is an excellent way of putting it. So the case had to go back to Delaware court for a third time. And in Delaware, they had to persuade the court that Mark's conviction was so egregious that they just had to fix it. But the federal public defenders usually practice in federal court, and they don't necessarily have experience practicing in Delaware court. So they needed a Delaware lawyer to support their work on Mark's case. And luckily, they knew a guy, a guy who had already done pro bono work on several innocence cases in Delaware. Hi, I'm Herb Mondros, and I'm an attorney at Regrodsky Law, and I do general litigation in Delaware, and I am also on the board. I'm the vice president of Innocence Project of Delaware. It's really been an amazing experience, uh, which I never, ever saw coming when I first got involved in it. It seemed just like an interesting thing to do, mix it up. I didn't know anything about really criminal law, certainly nothing about post-conviction law, but it just kind of got in my blood. Purnell's case came to me, uh, a couple of defenders from the Capitol Habeas Unit in Delaware came into my office one day and they said they wanted to have lunch. And as we're walking out of the building, I can still remember it. They said, we have this case we want you to consider. We think this guy's innocent. His name is Mark Purnell. And would you would you consider being local counsel for us? And so, uh, you know, my, my reaction was sure, because of my experiences with my previous cases. My role in these cases is generally to team build. What I can provide is entry to Delaware courts. I've been around long enough that people know who I am a little bit. And my MO that has been very successful is to enable these amazing lawyers that I get to work with and stay out of their way, let them do their thing. So Herb did his thing, support the federal defenders to appear in Delaware court. And the federal defenders really developed the evidence to show both technical defects and factual innocence. We worked really hard to investigate the case, get all the facts nailed down, and hold together these facts in a coherent way that can show, wow, you know, this guy is really innocent, and we think we know who did it. They dug up the coercive interrogations of Ronald. They tracked down the vascular surgeon for the knee surgery. They got affidavits showing that the witnesses against Mark later recanted their statements, and they presented their best case to the Delaware trial court. I thought we made a really compelling case for an evidentiary hearing with our, our trial judge, and the judge denied our, our hearing, and I was, I was, I was shocked. I, I, I was really shocked. Another loss in court. More time went by. Mark was still in prison. So Herb and Tiffany took the case to the Delaware Supreme Court again. But by this time, Tiffany had made a career change. So at the point of the oral argument in front of the Delaware Supreme Court, you had left the Federal Defender's Office. Is that right? Yes, I had. But you were still working on this case. So why did you keep working on it after, you know, that was no longer your job? Because I was 100% committed to Mark, and I could not bear the thought that if I didn't keep the case pro bono, that someone would have to start from scratch. And that was just too much to fathom. Right. I was really struck by your opening line at the first oral argument. 
I thought it was just so, it was so clear, but it was also a little bit disheartening. <laughs> and I think you really put on the table for the judges what was at stake. I was just on fire for that oral argument. I just was like, I am going in there and I am just telling it like it is. <laughs> so I started right off the gate saying it's not often that a criminal defense attorney gets to appear in front of the court and say my client is innocent. I get to say that to you today. The question is, do you get to do anything about it? And that was that was the question. So you kept this case pro bono. So you do the oral argument in front of the Supreme Court. And and what happens? What do they do as a result of your oral argument? The good thing is that they seem to be hooked. The bad thing is that they weren't hooked on my particular legal argument. They seem to be hooked on the factual innocence, but not on my legal argument on how they could do something about the factual innocence. After the oral argument, they ended up sending us notice that they wanted me to brief some additional issues. And these additional issues were thoughts that each of them had regarding how they might be able to do something about Mark's actual innocence. And then with that briefing, they wanted us to come back and re-argue the case in bank. So in front of all of the justices of the Delaware Supreme Court. So the Delaware court was hooked, but they wanted more briefs. They wanted a second oral argument. And the prosecutor was not dropping the case. So Herb and Tiffany stayed with it, both of them pro bono. The second oral argument was in early 2021. Mark was 31 years old. He was still in prison. And I asked Herb what happened next. After months of excruciating waiting, the, the decision came down. It was a 134-page opinion just totally dismantling the state's case. They found that Mark had demonstrated the actual innocence necessary for them to grant him relief. They decided he had been in prison for so long under these horrendous circumstances that instead of sending it back to the lower courts to determine whether a new trial should be granted, they just said, we've seen enough. We are granting a new trial. And it was just absolutely amazing and phenomenal. I, I have to say that decision reads like a movie script that might get rejected for being too implausible that all these things would happen to Mark. Really just uh, no, nothing, I mean, you read it, nothing went right for, for the guy except for when he took matters into his own hands. And when I'm it's a great opinion, but one of my favorite parts is the footnote where they, they talk about Mark's lack of a formal education, yet he wrote a, a robust and lengthy petition on his own behalf that ultimately is why he got relief. It was 
quite an accomplishment to get mm -hmm. get that sort of opinion out of the Delaware Supreme Court. So I got word to Mark to call me, and I just was on the edge of my seat waiting for this call. He called me within an hour, and I was just yelling about the amazing victory, and he started yelling, and they were screams of joy, and you know, I was jumping up and down, <laughs> and he was probably doing the same thing, and it was just an absolutely amazing moment that I will never forget. So let me ask you a question, and this is a little hard to get into, you know, what your mind knew or didn't know on that day. But what did you think? I'm sure Mark asked you, what now? What next? What did you think would happen next? What did you think the prosecutors would do about the new trial? So it wasn't so much what I thought as it was what I hoped. I hoped that they would take a cue <laughs> from the Delaware Supreme Court and decide that they were not going to pursue this matter any further. But that was not how things went. When that 134-page opinion dismantling the state's trial case against Purnell came down, we all thought that that was the, you know, we would be picking Mark up at the prison momentarily and the state was obviously going to dismiss the charges. And in fact, it was anything but that. They told the trial court that they were looking to, they were going to retry Mark. Which was just really sad as Mark sat there and continued to rot away as, you know, after the Delaware Supreme Court had used the words actual innocence in his case. I mean, it was just a travesty. On June 17, 2021, the Delaware Supreme Court handed down a landmark decision, finding that Mark Purnell had shown substantial evidence of actual innocence, and he was granted a new trial. You can read the decision for yourself, and you should. We've linked to it on the episode webpage. But as amazing as that accomplishment was, Mark Purnell spent almost an entire year in prison after that decision was handed down, waiting, while a new set of pro bono attorneys from the firm Milbank fought to secure his freedom. And he definitely was not treated like an innocent man while he waited. Mark's mom is is going to pass, and imminently we say, Judge, you know, please, you know, release him for the day so we can see his mother. The state opposes, which makes us want to pull our hair out as well. You can find out what it took to get Mark actually released from prison in part two of Justice Delayed. Thanks for listening to Pursuing Justice, The Pro Bono Files. 
a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. This production is dedicated to the pro bono and public interest lawyers working to improve access to justice. A special thanks goes to our producer, Daniel Pinitz, as well as our host, Alicia Aiken. Please note that the views and opinions expressed during this podcast represent those of the individuals being interviewed and not necessarily those of PLI. PLI is a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys and other professionals at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. For more information about PLI's wide-ranging curriculum of pro bono programs, visit pli.edu slash pro bono.